We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Romans 11, verses 1 through 24. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, Branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off, for if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Good morning. 
My name is Sam. I'm one of the pastors here at Emmaus. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, uh, let me welcome you. Glad that you could be uh, with us and worshiping on this Lord's Day. Uh, I'm very excited to get in this text, but first I want to explain the, uh, the baby bottles that you will see um, out front as you exit. Uh, we partner with a ministry here in Kansas City called Rachel House. We try to do this once a year um, where we do a baby bottle drive. So Rachel House is a crisis pregnancy center here in the Kansas City area. They help women who uh, have become pregnant under crisis um, situations. Uh, Many of them are contemplating abortion, and Rachel House is uh, a ministry that um, helps them. It gives them resources and also gives them counsel and tries to dissuade them from abortion. So they do their part uh, to combat against the scourge of infanticide abortion in this country. And uh, so we like this uh, ministry. One of my favorite parts about this ministry is that they not only allow, but they encourage uh, their volunteers to share the gospel with the women that they encounter. And so uh, what we do is uh, the the baby bottle drive basically works like this. You'll take a a baby bottle, fill it with um, change, dollar bills, checks, whatever form um, you want for for, uh, donating to this ministry. And then you bring it back to church um, March 28th, the last week of the last Sunday of March is when we will collect all of these. Uh, that's the deadline to collect all of these and give them to Rachel House. So I commend this ministry to you uh, and would encourage you to give as you are able. Let me pray for us and then we will begin our time in this text together. <clears throat> but try you and God, we are thankful for what you have given us this morning the undeserved grace of another Lord's Day. Another day to gather with your people to worship you and the splendor of holiness. We ask that you would unite our hearts to fear your name as we collectively now submit ourselves under your word. We pray for the spirit of unity and the bond of peace at various levels. In our homes, We ask that you would bring husbands and wives together, parents and children, in our community. Lord, may our different convictions and propensities not divide us, but rather harmonize to glorify your great name. We pray for the many churches in the Kansas City area who are proclaiming your word faithfully this morning. We ask that you would bless the preaching of the gospel. And for any churches who may be spiritually dead or compromised in this area, we pray that you would bless the reading of your word with power. As a local expression of your universal body, Christ, we ask that you give us affection for our brothers and sisters in Christ around the globe. We pray for the nomadic people group in North Africa to whom our sister Darian ministered for these past two years. Lord, may your word continue to spread among them. Bless them with a pastor and a church so that they can worship together. Please grant them that community soon. And please knit our hearts together with our global family and love. Help us to embrace our central and orienting identity in Christ. And may our union with him be the ballast that keeps every other identification, tribe, or party relative. We know that you are capable of building up your church in this way with your word. And so we ask you to do so now. Holy Spirit, convict us where we need conviction and encourage us where we need encouragement. 
Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. We ask all of this in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, before we even begin to engage this text this morning, I want, I want for us to appreciate what a mercy and what a kindness it is that this chapter even exists in the Bible. In John chapter 15, verse 15, Jesus says to his disciples, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. He's saying, I am befriending you, and my friendship of you is manifested in this way, that I'm not keeping you in the dark about what the Father is doing. In a very real way, this passage represents God befriending us. God is letting us in on what his plans are in this world, and he really doesn't have to. We're chapter 11 of Romans, never to have been included in the Bible, our Great Commission marching orders would be exactly the same, right? But in his unspeakable kindness, God has graciously shared with us the blueprints for the victorious future that he is securing. How does that affect our mission? Well, in terms of content, materially, it doesn't do much. Right Before Romans 11, our mission was to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that Christ commands. And after Romans 11, our mission is exactly the same. But with Romans 11, we have insider knowledge about what God is doing through the Great Commission on a global scale. He promises Revival in this chapter, which means now our mission can be carried out with zeal and confidence that defies the gates of hell. He promises revival. This chapter adds fuel to the fire so that we can press on with confidence. This chapter is pure gift. It's pure promise of God's wise victory, which is why Paul is going to conclude this chapter with that glorious doxology. Oh, the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how inscrutable his judgments and how unsearchable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he should be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. By the time Paul finishes telling us what God is up to in history, he cannot but praise God in that way. So let's let him Take us through this train of thought so that we too can conclude our time in doxology. Remember that last week we were left off with chapter 10, verse 21, which tells us about how God is saying to Israel, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. That's what he says to ethnic Israel at large. And so verse one of chapter 11, Paul says, I ask then, Has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. In other words, he's saying, listen, if God has rejected the Jews, how do you explain my salvation? I'm a Jew and I'm a Christian. 
So God has not rejected the Jews. Verse two, God has not rejected his own people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says to Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Here, Paul quotes from 1 Kings 19. And that passage comes on the heels of one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible. It's the showdown between Elijah and the 400 priests of Baal. And at this point in the history of 1 Kings, King Ahab and his wife Jezebel have led the entire nation into Baal worship. And so Elijah is raised up by God as a prophet to rebuke Israel for her treachery. And things come to a head on Mount Carmel and a competition of sorts is conducted between Elijah and the 400 priests of Baal. And without getting into it, spoiler alert, Elijah wins. Yahweh wins. And the priests of Baal, all 450 of them, are executed. Now, as you can imagine, Ahab and Jezebel don't take their loss well. And so Jezebel puts a hit out on Elijah's head. She promises that she's going to kill him. And so Elijah flees for his life. And this conversation that Paul quotes in Romans 11 takes place when Elijah has fled from Jezebel and he's hiding in the wilderness for his life. And he, is, he essentially complains to God and tells God, Lord, I am it. I'm all alone. All I've done is be faithful and it's cost me everything. And now I'm alone. And God's reply amounts to, do you really think I'm this impotent? I have 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. This is not unlike an experience that Paul himself would experience in Acts chapter 18, when God came to him in a vision and said, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. God preserves a remnant for himself always. That's the point. God preserves a remnant for himself always. There is no stamping out the people of God in any final or ultimate sense. He always preserves a remnant, and that remnant is always preserved by grace and grace alone. This little phrase, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. That can be deceiving the way that that's, that reads. It's not intended to imply that, that there ever was a chosen people who were preserved by works. No longer is, is instead uh, trying to emphasize this kind of point. It's somewhere along the lines of, a remnant can no more be kept by works than the wages of works be considered grace. All that to say, the only way a remnant is ever preserved is on account of grace and grace alone. That's the point. Verse seven, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. She failed to obtain salvation because she sought it outside of God's intended will. God in Isaiah 29 says it like this, this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far 
from me. So Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it. The remnant, which includes Paul, the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Now, as difficult as it is for us to stomach, this passage tells us in no uncertain terms that Israel's spirit of stupor that compels her to foolishly reject her own Messiah is a spirit that God himself gave her. The first passage is quoted from Isaiah 29.10. And the second passage is from Psalm 69.22 and 23, both passages from different portions of the Old Testament. And together, they point, uh, the, their point is to emphasize that the widespread hard-heartedness of Israel is not surprising to God. In fact... That hard-heartedness is something that is ordained by God himself for his own purposes. Verse 11, so I ask them, did they stumble in order that they might fall? In other words, is God completely done with them as a, as a unique people? Did God, did he give them this spirit of stupor that prevented them from seeing and savoring Christ as their Messiah just to be vindictive? Do we have to bitter this, uh, swallow this bitter pill that the only descendants of Abraham that will make it in are this, this very few remnant? Does God intend for Israel to stumble over the chief cornerstone who is Christ forever? Is there no good and merciful and redemptive purpose for this stumbling, this hardening? Paul's answer is by no means. Rather, through their trespass, that is, their rejection of Christ, through their rejection of Christ, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous, verse 12. Now, if their trespass means the riches for the world, that is salvation coming to the Gentiles, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Behold the kind and merciful divine irony of our triune God. God blinds Israel by giving them a savior whose glory he knew they would reject. And in this twist of fate, Israel's loss becomes Gentile gain. We see this all throughout the book of Acts. As Israel rejects her Messiah, Paul and his fellow missionaries are driven to the Gentiles. And this experience is summed up in Acts 28, 28, when Paul says, therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen, and they do. The gospel goes to the Gentiles because the Jews reject Christ. But then, eucatastrophe. You know that term, eucatastrophe? This is coined by J.R.R. Tolkien. It's the, it's the polar opposite of catastrophe, right? It's that sudden surge of joy and happy ending right where you least expected it. There is a eucatastrophe because in this redemptive divine irony, Gentile gain will actually become Israelite gain. 
So Israel's loss becomes Gentile gain, and then Gentile gain becomes Israel's gain. Think about this. When, when Israel provokes God to jealousy, the result is uh, death and wrath and ruin. When God provokes Israel to jealousy, the result is salvation to the Gentiles and salvation to Israel. God provoking Israel to jealousy results in Israel's own salvation. This means that the hardening that God gave the Israelites here is a partial hardening. That's what we see in verse 25. It's partial because it's not universal. Again, Paul is included among the Israelite elect. He's part of this remnant, so it's partial because it's not universal. But it's also partial because it's not everlasting. Right? Eventually, God is going to remove this partial hardening, and he's going to do it by parading Gentiles in front of Israel into the kingdom of Christ to provoke them to jealousy. Israelite is going to be like the, the um, uh, Israel is going to be like the prodigal son come, suddenly wakes, uh, wakes to himself and says, wait a second, that's our Messiah that the Gentiles are enjoying. What are we doing? We're missing out on all of these promises that God gave us as a people while the Gentiles are enjoying them. Why are we being so foolish? And then they will come filing into the church as well. Israel will come filing into the church. You hear that? There are not two different plans of salvation, one for the Gentile and one for the Jew. There's not going to be a resurrection of a new uh, temple with temple priestly sacrifices that Israel is going to perform. It's not going to happen. Jesus is the new temple. His, his sacrifice fulfills all of Israel's sacrifice. So what it means for Israel to come into this revival is for her to come into the church. Israel is going to come filing into the church. Now, I don't want you to take my word for it. I just, I just made really drastic claims about what the future is going to hold on a global scale with Israel in relation to the rest of the nations. So let's check our work. Let's see if what I'm telling you about the future of Israel's eventual inclusion is true. Let's see if this is true. Verse 13. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. Why? Why does Paul call attention to his ministry among the Gentiles? Verse 14. In order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, again, meaning salvation coming to the Gentiles, if Israel's rejection means the gospel going to the nations, the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Whoa. And that seems to indicate that this revival, this eventual revival among ethnic Israel will be closer to the return of Christ when the dead are raised. Verse 16, if the dough that is offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Which basically amounts to Paul saying, look, if God set the patriarchs apart as holy and gave them generational promises, you can bet that their descendants will eventually be brought back in. The leaven will spread, the final crop will yield its increase, and the tree will grow. Now, this doesn't, contradict what Paul just said in Romans 9, namely that no ethnic Israelite can take his salvation for granted on account of his ethnicity. 
That is still very much true. The only way into the promises of God is through Christ and Christ alone. He is the only door that we enter into to get into the promises of God. This passage about this future inclusion of of ethnic Israel is not saying that that they're going to somehow, uh, that this this rule is somehow going to have an uh, an, an exception for ethnic Israel in the future. He is the only door into the, into the fold of Christ. And so he's the door. But this is a promise that in the future, the physical descendants of Abraham will begin to file in through that door, Jesus Christ, by faith and faith alone. So what does this mean for us Gentiles in the meantime? Most of us here today are, are, are Gentiles. So what does that mean for us in the meantime? Paul goes on, verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off, And you, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others, now and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. That is, you know, we weren't born in Abraham's bloodline, but we who are Gentiles still share in all of Abraham's blessings. All of the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. So being in Christ, we are now inheritors of Israel's blessings. So, uh, we, we are now brought in and share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, verse 18. Therefore, do not be arrogant toward the branches, that is, ethnic Israel. If you are, remember, it is not you who supports the root, but the root that supports you. It is grace that we have been included in God's blessing to Abraham. It is grace that Israel's Messiah is the world's Messiah. Verse 19, then you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. Now I want us to notice how fear works in this passage. The fear of God that Paul commands here is not a cowering terror, right? Where we flinch and fear that God might respond like how an abused child might respond to an ungodly dad with a bad temper. That's not the kind of fear that Paul commands here. This fear is the polar opposite, not of comfort. He's not saying, don't be comfortable, instead fear. This fear is the polar opposite of pride. Don't be proud, but fear. It's a fear that acknowledges frailty and need. It's a fear that falls down before God, trembling in awe of his overwhelming grace. A fear that comes to resent the very notion of haughtiness or pride. Paul says, don't be proud. Instead, fear, be humble, be flattened by the kindness of God, which you do not deserve. And brothers and sisters, we desperately need this message. We need godly fear. We have to stop trifling with God's word as if it's something that's light. It's not. It's heavy. It demands our whole lives. We have to stop trifling with God's word. We need the kind of fear that one author describes as leading to, quote, humility and a contempt for all self-complacency and self-conceit. We need the kind of fear that refuses to allow us 
to think ourselves more highly than we ought. A fear that embraces gratitude for salvation. Verse 21, for if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Remember, he's talking to Gentiles now. Note the kindness and severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, namely, in this instance, most of ethnic Israel who reject Christ. But kindness, God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you will be cut off. Now, does this passage contradict what Paul has just been saying in chapters 8 and 9 of Romans about God's sovereign providential work of saving and sustaining and keeping his elect? No. Paul is not contradicting himself two chapters later. Rather, it's making a simple and straightforwardly true statement. If you are not trusting Christ by faith alone, then you cannot take your salvation for granted. If you're not continuing in God's kindness by faith and faith alone, faith and faith alone and Christ alone, you will not be saved. This doesn't throw into question any of the teaching of God's sovereign work in salvation, but this is what it does do. It absolutely demolishes any delusions of entitlement. That's the point. This passage is trying to take away any delusion of entitlement, that we are entitled to salvation. This is why the question, have you made a decision to follow Christ, is a good question. But a better question is, are you following Christ? This is why the question, have you trusted Christ by faith alone, is a good question. But a better question is, are you trusting in Christ by faith and faith alone? Paul is saying this, look at Israel. Learn from them, right? They had begun to presume upon the kindness of God. They were presumptuous and thought that they could expect deliverance from God because of their ethnicity and their self-wrought self-righteousness. They were wrong. Don't be like them. Don't be presumptuous. Don't go on and make the same mistake they made. Brothers and sisters, we are not entitled to a thing. All that we have is all of grace. The presumptuous person, the presumptuous person who thinks himself okay because of his family or his lifestyle or his past experiences. He said a prayer once at a church camp. He made a decision to follow Christ once. The person who thinks himself okay because of any of these means other than his continual refuge in Christ is not safe from the wrath of God. The only safety from the wrath of God is the refuge of Christ in whom we hide by faith and faith alone. It's Christ who saves us. It's not our past decisions that, we, that save us. It's not our family that saves us. It's not the church that we attend that saves us. It is Christ and Christ alone who, who we receive as our refuge by faith and faith alone. And this is true for the Gentiles. It's also true, as Paul goes on to say, for the Jews as well. Verse 23, and even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, 
be grafted back into their own olive tree. This is incredible. Now, we have come to think about Christianity as an essentially non-Jewish faith. We tend to think like the church Christianity is the Gentile version of the, the people who embrace the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, the, the church is the Gentile version and Judaism, contemporary Judaism is the Jewish version. We've come to think that. That's not true, right? Judaism, true uh, uh, Judaism come to itself is Christianity. So it's not, it's not true that there are two different, two different plans of salvation, right? We've come to think about Christianity as an essentially non-Jewish faith because Christ was largely rejected by the Jews when he first came. Romans 1 told us this, right? That the, the gospel is the power of salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile, right? So they were rejected. And then over the course of 2,000 years of church history, the story of the church has largely been the story of various Gentiles coming into the faith. That's why we come to think about Christianity as an essentially non-Jewish faith. But that story, the story of Gentiles coming into the Christian faith, that story, according to this passage, is the story of wild olive branches being grafted into an Israelite tree, an Israelite olive shoot, which was always intended to include all of those various branches from wild olive shoots. It's not like that was a, a plan B, that's always been God's intention according to his purpose to bless his son with an omni-ethnic bride. But the point is that Gentiles are receiving blessings that were originally promised to Israel. What does that mean? That means that the unbelieving Jew who is practicing Judaism, when he renounces his legalistic pursuit of righteousness through works and comes to embrace Jesus Christ as his Messiah, through faith alone, when he does that, he's not departing from the faith of his ancestors. Embracing Israel's Messiah by faith alone is the most Israelite thing he can do. He's never more a faithful Jew than when he is worshiping Christ, the eternally begotten Son from the Father, from whom with the Father the Spirit proceeds eternally. In other words, he's never more a faithful Jew than when he becomes a Trinitarian, grace-loving Christian. So this passage confirms what Christ has said so often. This is incredible. This is a, this is a global uh, demonstration of this principle that Christ repeated so often in his earthly ministry. The last, or the first will be last, and the last will be first. Gospel is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also the Gentile. The first will be last and the last will be first. Where does that leave us for today? Because we have to conclude here. I can't go to the doxology just yet. That's Pastor Adam's sermon next week. So what, where, where are we left this morning? Well, I have two pastoral charges for you. The first is this. Don't despair because God keeps his people. As the world around us becomes increasingly hostile to the gospel, it may be tempting to despair and think like Elijah thought that we are all alone. Sometimes the darkness of unbelief can feel suffocating and the lostness of our friends and family can feel intense and overwhelming. We must remember that God always sustains a remnant. 
he is building his church and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. Now, that doesn't mean that every particular expression of the church is invincible, right? It's not as if Christ is building American evangelicalism and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it, or as if, or as if uh, uh, Christ is building Emmaus, and we can just take for granted that, that Emmaus will exist for, forever. That's not, that's not what I'm saying, right? There, think about this. This is sobering. There are entire unbelieving liberal denominations who have become entirely compromised because they fail to heed the advice that Paul gives the Romans here in Romans chapter 11. They became proud and presumptuous and forsook the Christ of the Bible. So when I say that God will always sustain a remnant, that Christ is always building his church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it, I'm not inviting, for, I'm not inviting us to take for granted any particular church movement or denomination or anything like that. But what I am saying is that true believers are never alone. True believers are never entirely alone. I was reminded of this afresh last week when Darian, one of our members, shared with our community group about her time in North Africa these past two years. The people to whom she ministered, this nomadic people group that we call the bean people because of the work that they do in, in, uh, with coffee beans, uh, this, this bean people, this nomadic people group, this people group that she ministered to for two years had such a microscopic Christian presence there that most of the converts had no church to go to once they professed faith in Christ. One of our brothers, one of the brothers over there that she told us about, had to constantly be moving his family around because his Muslim relatives and family members were so persistent in persecuting him. They followed him around, persecuting him. They took attempts at his life and even targeted his own children. What's sorrow? Right? We, we talk about that and there's sorrow. But we, we, when I describe the darkness that hangs over that region of the world, we must never forget that God has a remnant. We, we have family in North Africa. We have brothers and sisters in Christ. I have a brother in North Africa named Muhammad, whom I love and have never met, who's on the road, often fleeing from persecution. God keeps his people. Second, the second pastoral charge is this. Be grateful. Be grateful and therefore be about the Great Commission. You see how I tied those things together? Be grateful and be about the Great Commission. One pastoral charge. Right, the proper response to the story I just told you should be a godly angst. We should be lamenting that there are too few Christians among these people to even start a church. We should be lamenting that there are too few believing men there to be pastors. And we should be lamenting that there are too few missionary men who are willing to go over there to disciple them to become pastors. I should break our hearts. Brothers, there are many among the nations that are not yet glad and do not yet sing for joy. Too many of our neighbors are not yet glad and do not yet sing for joy. Last week, Jason asked us to share the gospel with at least one person before the month of March is over. If you were hoping that I would forget and not remind you, sorry, I'm not sorry. Right? How's that going? 
Listen, I'm not guilting you. I'm not wanting you to evangelize out of guilt. We should be motivated by gratitude. Think about this, brothers and sisters. We have been blessed with salvation. We know God. We know Christ. We have seen the glory of God in his face. We have tasted the sweetness of having our sins forgiven. Our guilt has been truly dealt with. We have been washed and forgiven and renewed and commissioned. We have been given very special promises about the future. We've been adopted into the family of God. The God who created heaven and on heaven and earth is our Father. The Spirit of Christ indwells us and sanctifies us. Our inheritance, brothers and sisters, our inheritance is happiness in God forever. And there are so many people who don't know any of these blessings. Oh, that we would be about the Great Commission. The Gentiles are coming in. This is, this is what this season of history is for. The Gentiles are coming in. And this passage and next week's passage, we're going to see that the church is filling up with Gentiles. And then at some point, it's going to fill up with a revival among the Jews. What that means is now's the time to put hand to plow and give ourselves over to this great work. Right? Perhaps, perhaps, uh, perhaps you are, are, have been praying and thinking about potentially doing the Great Commission work. Let's just be so bold as to say, maybe this is a word from the Lord to you to say, do it. Let's make it happen. Right, guys, we know how the story ends. The gospel's victory is sure. If that's not motivation to go to the nations, I'm not sure what is. And perhaps you're here today and you're not a believer in Christ. You've been attending church. Maybe you've been attending this church and you find yourself unable to account for the stirrings in your chest as I stand up here talking about a lot of things, many of which you don't understand at all. Now, if that's you, I'm sure you can at least understand this much. You were made for God. You were made for God. You weren't made for yourself, to worship yourself, to worship your idolatrous aspirations. You were made to worship and obey and love God. That's what you're made for. And your sin is very great. Your sin is no small thing. No matter how much the world around you tells you that you just need to, to do you, your sin is very great and you can do nothing to cleanse your filthy conscience. But I offer Christ to you today. We offer Christ to you today and you may have him by faith. You can take him, but only if you bring your nothingness to him. Don't offer anything in exchange for grace. The status of your life, the condition of your soul, your works, don't offer anything. As soon as you bring something in exchange for grace, the offer is off the table. All Christ wants is your need. So just bring your need to him. Ask him for the forgiveness of sins and his death on the cross will count for your punishment. Ask him for the righteousness that you could never achieve and he will give you his. Ask him to cleanse you of the stain of guilt and shame and he'll wash you and make you new. He'll give you a new heart. Ask him for purpose and he'll restore you back to fellowship with your God so that you can glorify and enjoy him forever. That's what you were made for. 
And, and let me just say, if you know I've been talking to you for these past couple of minutes, that the Spirit of God is, is now confirming and saying, yeah, this is you. This is you. I'm talking to you through this, through this strange, wiry guy right now. I'm talking to you. This is your invitation. If that's happening, if the Spirit of Christ is, is ministering to you right now saying, this is you, this is your invitation, then I just charge you, stop running. Receive forgiveness. Receive salvation. Cry out to Christ today in prayer and say, Lord, I am tired of running. I'm tired of being enslaved to my sin and idolatry. Please give me the grace of salvation. Atone for my sins and make me yours. I invite you to pray that prayer, even as we as a church celebrate this meal of communion that we celebrate every week here at our church. If you're not a Christian, if you came in here this morning, you're not a Christian, then don't take this, this meal. Don't take communion today. Instead, take Jesus in prayer while we as a church share this meal together and testify the invitation to you, right? This is a church meal. It's a meal for the body of Christ. So before you can take it, you need to come into the body of Christ. And by the way, if you do, if you cling to Jesus this morning by faith alone, if you reach out to him by faith alone, would you please tell us and let us pray for you? Would you tell me after the service or, or tell anyone that you see stand up and come and take this communion meal? Or, or better yet, even if you're not comfortable with that, would you email us at Emmaus, at elders at EmmausKC.com? We want to know. We want to pray for you. We want to encourage you. And Emmaus, church, let's share this meal together. And as we do, I'd like for us to meditate on the small C Catholic nature of this meal. Catholic meaning universal, okay? Not Roman Catholic. Catholic meaning universal. I want us to meditate on the small C Catholic nature of this meal. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that the bread that we participate in is the bread of Christ, and that's a participation that all Christians throughout all time and space have shared in. This meal that we share is a family meal that all believers, past, present, and future, share. This is a meal that many ethnic Israelites will come to enjoy, according to Romans chapter 11, and it's a meal that many believers across the globe enjoy right now. It's a family table. And guys, it's a family table that is plenty big enough for us to invite so many more people to. What brings us together in this family is the body and blood of Christ alone, his body broken for us, his blood shed for us. So I invite you to this table and I invite you to marvel at the fact that Christ is building his global church with ordinary and counterintuitive ways. Counterintuitive means like talking, preaching, singing, eating, drinking, baptizing. I invite you to come and celebrate what Christ has done and is doing at this table. I'm going to pray and then ask for the believers to come down. You'll exit along this aisle to my left, uh, receive your hand sanitizer, and then come over here, receive the elements of the, the bread and the cup over here, and then you'll exit, you'll return to your seat along this aisle to my right. Let me pray for us, and we can, we can do that. Lord Jesus, bless us. Please bless us here at your table as we eat in remembrance of your broken body and drink in remembrance of your shed blood, we ask that you would build your church in ways that we can't imagine. Draw those who are not yet yours to yourself and feed those of us in your flock 
with another meal from this table that you have set for us in the wilderness. We ask this to the glory of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I love you, church. Let's share this meal together. Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.